All right. Well, we're going to just jump right in. Um, we're going to be in the book of First John. If you have a Bible, if you have your electronic device, why don't you tab and turn to First John. Most of you know we've been making our way through this great epistle, this letter that John the Apostle, John the Beloved, as he refers to himself in his gospel. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 2. If you're new, you're visiting, welcome. We're blessed that you're able to join us this afternoon. Uh, if you missed out, if you are interested, we do have our teachings on podcasts and archives. So if you would like to go back and, and check those things out, we invite you to do that. We do have that recorded for you. Um, and then also second service, we prayed for the DACA family. So Antoine and Genesis and uh, Kylie, they, um, this is their last Sunday. But amazingly, I was humbled and blessed Uh it's their last Sunday, but they're serving. Like they came to second service, worshiped, and then downstairs and serving our children's ministry. So uh, anyways, uh, after service, make sure you say thank you and bless them. Uh, we're going to miss them. And so grateful for uh, families like them. But First uh, John chapter 2, we're going to step into the, the doorway, if you will, of this chapter, looking at only verses 1 and 2. And I entitled our message this afternoon, The Gospel Courtroom. The gospel courtroom. So if you're there, I'm going to invite you to stand as we do in honor of God and his word. I know in some of your jobs that you put on a uniform or places that you work, when someone walks into the room that's uh, of rank or of authority, of position, we stand. And so similarly, in honor of God himself and his word, we stand and we read these uh, verses. All right. John writes, he says, my little children, these things I write to you. So that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation of our sins. And not for ours only, John writes, but also for the whole world. All right, we're going to pause there. It's all of two verses, but there's a lot that John has packed in there. And so uh, let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful for the blessing we can gather here. Lord, uh, reminded this morning in reading just a beautiful word picture of how you are the potter and we are clay. And uh, Lord, as the master craftsman of our life, your hands of grace are upon us, working in our lives and upon our lives, you mold and you shape it. At times, there's, you stretch us. At times, you, you even cut things away that, uh, that aren't good for us. And we thank you for that work. Although uh, it might be hard in seasons, and maybe we don't understand what you're doing in that moment, but Lord, we, we trust it's for our good and for your glory. And so in that, Lord, we pray even this afternoon that through your spirit, you continue through your hands of grace, through the word of God, to work in our hearts this day. And by faith, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, third service, take a moment to say hello to someone. Introduce yourself to somebody new. Shake a hand, hug a neck. Take your time. There's no fourth service. You guys staying warm? <laughs> it's like frozen tundra in Okinawa these days, right? Well, if, if you've been around for a little bit, I know some of you have and some of you haven't, uh, or you're new, you're visiting, again, welcome. We're blessed that you're here. 
Um, you've heard me say, and you're going to hear me say today, one, one of the things I, I really appreciate and love about the Bible, and there's a lot to love and appreciate, but it's these various word pictures, uh, metaphors and analogies that the scriptures, the Bible uh, writers include as a descriptor of, of our faith. And there's so many dimensions of it, but uh, just for class participation real quick, like what are, the, what are some of the ways the Bible describes our salvation? Certainly just by that name, like we're, we're, we're described as being saved, but what are some other terms that the Bible uses to describe our salvation? Redemption, very good. That's a great one. We've been redeemed. Made righteous, very good. Sanctified, set aside, absolutely. What are some other ones? Adopted, that's a, that's a beautiful one. Any others you guys can think of? Yeah. We've been rescued. Um, you know, the Bible says how we have been transferred, right, from the kingdom of darkness. Even as we sang, from the kingdom of darkness, we've been brought into the kingdom of light. The Bible says we were once afar off. We've been brought near, adopted. Uh, yeah, PCS, that's right, transferred. Uh, we were once dead, and, and we've been made alive, you know. Even we sang earlier, we were once blind, right? And we see there's, there's all these great descriptors of our salvation. And I love looking at those and considering those various ways in which we, uh, the Bible describes our salvation. Then, then, then there's a whole other category of the way the Bible describes our relationship with God himself. Um, what, what are some of those ways that our relationship with God is described? Very good. Right? We're described as, as a family, we, we, we have a sonship with the Lord. We're, we've been adopted, and so we're his kids. And so the Bible describes our relationship like a family. What's another one? Anybody know? Very good. Yeah, like, uh, that's a good one, Micaiah. Like, we, we are called, you know, the flock of God, right? Jesus is our chief shepherd. He is the, the shepherd who laid down his life for us, and we are the pasture of his hand, and we're, we're, we're sheep. And so the, our relationship with God is described, you know, in that way, kind of interesting. What's another one, Amy? No? Very good. Very good. We're described as his bride. Jesus is the bridegroom. We as the church are, are the bride. Right? We're waiting for the bridegroom to come back and call us. Right? I mean, there's, all, there's a whole bunch of other ones too. We're, we're, we're described as a body. Je- Jesus is the head, right? We're, we're body. We're part of the body of Christ. Um, we're described as uh, a priesthood. Um, right? We're brought into the priesthood of, of believers. Peter would say we're a royal priesthood. We're described as stones. Peter says we're like living Legos being built up into a spiritual house. Uh, again, so these amazing descriptors. And then, and then there's a whole other set of, of metaphors that just describe uh, our walk in general. I mean, there's a whole categories of them. One of them is uh, warfare. Right? We're, we're described as spiritual combatants. Uh, we, we've been enlisted in, in the army of God. No offense to airmen and marines and sailors and the galaxy force. What are they? I was, the guardians, the guardians, right? Yeah. Right. You, uh, you're, we're soldiers in God's army. Uh, athletics is another one. Um, the Bible talks about how we, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And so, you know, there's ties into warfare, but uh, the Bible describes our, our, our relationship as a walk, right? We're walking with the Lord or uh, uh, Paul says, you know, like a boxer, I don't beat against the air. Uh, and so there's all these athletic 
you know, we compete for a prize. We're, we're in a marathon, right? We run the race of faith. And so these great descriptors, uh, combatants and athletics, uh, construction's another one, right? We, we've been, if you will, uh, brought into God's, uh, God the Father's construction. You know, it's a family business. We are building the kingdom of God. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Uh, we build upon a foundation that's been laid by the apostles and the prophets, the book of Ephesians says. Uh, Paul tells us, be careful how we build, you know, the building materials. And so there's, there's all these, um, again, insightful metaphors, these analogies that give us some depth and dimension to this thing called our faith in Christ. And, and those are just a few and I encourage you uh, in your own time of Bible study, just consider those. Uh, another powerful one that John brings us into, and hence even the title of our message this morning, is the analogy of a courtroom. The New Testament uh, often elicits this imagery of our salvation like a court case, where God the Father is the righteous judge, and we stand before the Father, um, well, Guilty, right? We, we stand before him and, and we are uh, guilty of breaking the law of God. And, and the Bible describes Satan as the, as the accuser. He, he is, if you will, the lead prosecutor bringing charges against us, both credible, things that are real, and also things that are false. Like he, he makes false accusations against us. And then, of course, Jesus, as we read here, uh, our advocate our, our chief counsel. He is our defense attorney and he stands for us and he defends us against these accusations. And so this is the imagery that these two verses of chapter two uh, bring us into that we'll consider. And so I draw your attention back to verse one where John writes, my little children. Now that's not a court term. Uh, that, that's a very, that's a, that's a family term. And it's the first time he's addressing his audience. You remember if you began this book with us or you're familiar with this letter, when John begins, he doesn't introduce himself like we find the pattern with Paul or Peter or they'll start like Paul, an apostle or bondservant of Jesus Christ to those who are in Galatia or Peter to the pilgrims who are scattered abroad. There's no introduction. He just comes right out of the chute, right? He just gets to the nitty gritty. He just talks about how he talked with Jesus, saw Jesus, touched Jesus. My paraphrase, had uh, fish tacos with Jesus, right? He, um, he, he starts off there. But now he addresses them. He, he identifies them, if you will. And he does so in a very endearing way. I mean, that term, my little children, which he will use, by the way, often throughout his letters, implies... Well, it implies a number of things. It implies a personal relationship. Uh, to use the word, word my, that's a possessive modifier, right? He, uh, there's a personal connection. He identifies with who he's writing to as he calls them my. And of course, even the term little children, uh, that, that, that is a, a term of family. That is a term of affection. Now, the other writers of the Bible often will use the term brethren. Um, and we see him use that term as well in verse 7. But John uniquely will write and call his audience, my little children. It implies, again, some number of things. It implies, well, he's probably a little bit older. And history would tell us that he, he was. He was a, 
uh, kind of the elderly apostle, if you will, the elder apostle. Um, he'd been around for a while. He, of course, walked and talked with Jesus, uh, recognized as a, a leader within the community of faith. And, of course, he then has this affection, a very fatherly parental affection for the people that he's writing to. And there's a, an aspect of this that I can relate to as uh, we've been here in Okinawa now coming up on 23 years. And by God's grace, uh, there are um, still a, a few of you who, when we first started in our first early years, were here, but you were here as little kids. Uh, Josh Hagen and Yastomo and Anna and, and, and some of you, like Sarah, who helped lead worship, you know, I, we've known her since she was born. Um, and... Uh, and so the blessing of us has been able to see with joy these, uh, I still call them kids, although, Josh, how old are you now? 27, you're an old man, bro. <laughs> you know, uh, these babies having babies now, right? They themselves have, uh, several of them have gotten married and, and now several of them, a few of them have babies of their own. So Josh and Anna, uh, Kaylee, uh, Luke and April, and then Yastomo, which is funny because, uh, Yastomo's been with us almost since day one. And when I talk about him to other people, I'm like, oh, we have this kid in our church. I still think of him. He's perpetually stuck in my head in junior high school. Um, and so I, I can relate to John who has this uh, parental affection, this familiar affection for them. Um, you know, and as now these kids are having kids, my wife is totally okay with the term Grandma Christy. Um, but uh, if you know for me, I, I'm not okay with the term Grandpa Rick. I, I'm Uncle Rick. Uh, Uncle Rick to the kids, and I'm Uncle Rick to your kids' kids. Right. Uh, you know, Christy, she loves the toddlers, the littles. She refers to them as my little people and uh, has a heart for them, and some of you do too, you know. And so when I see them, I'm like, oh, those are your little people. <laughs> I mean, this is how John feels uh, to his readers. He, he has a, a parental affection for them. He holds a deep value uh, of, of relationship that's been formed and forged in the Lord. Uh, I mean, later on in chapter 3, he's going to remind us of this as well. He's going to say, behold what the manner of love that God has bestowed upon us that you and I should be called the children of God. Right? This great picture of us being family. And of course for John, it, I think it, man, it hits home personally, because he himself writes of this account in John 19, where uh, he is standing before the cross of Christ. And, and as Jesus is on the cross, dying for his sins and your sins and mine, the Bible records seven things that Jesus would say from the cross. And one of those things that is recorded for us of the seven actually is directly to John. It's to John and, and it's to Mary, his Jesus' mom. And so as Jesus is hanging there in agony and pain, he sees John, he sees Mary, and he addresses them. And he says, woman, affectionate, uh, behold your son. And then he says to John, behold your mother. And the Bible says that from that very hour, John took, if you will, adopted Mary and brought her into his household. The idea is that he took care of Mary, the mother of Jesus, until she passed away. And for us over the years, we've, we've looked at that scene, we've considered that scene, and, and there's just this mantra, 
you know, the, the, that scene has become a, uh, a value for us. And, uh, and so we, we just say, hey, families are made at the foot of the cross. And, and that's what God does with us. And we've added to that over the last few years that it's relationships that are the currency of our faith. There's one thing that you and I get to invest in and form and forge that will be eternal. It's this, right? It's our relationship with each other. Nothing, we don't bring anything else with us when we go to heaven. There is no her, uh, no U-Haul following a hearst uh, on a funeral day. There's one thing that you and I get to make on this side of, of eternity that we get to take with us and that's eternal relationships in Jesus Christ. And so, um, you know, I, if you're with us when we began, John, in the new year, I told you that one of the things I want to try to do for us as a church is fold in some of the vision that God has given us for this year and fold in some of the values that we want to reaffirm as a church body and community. And so here's one of them. We camp here for a bit just to say this. We as a church, and I, and I want to invite you into this space, we value um, genuine and authentic relationships. And because we value them, we want to invest in them. We, 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 we don't want them to be surfacy. We don't want them to be superficial. We, we hope and pray that together um, we would go a little bit deeper in that. And so we look at John. He has this relationship, a deep relationship, a deep love for these people. Again, we believe it's the most important investment you can make in the kingdom of God. So we want to cultivate these relationships. And I pray that you would too. He goes on and he says, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Now, John is a guy that doesn't beat around the bush. He just tells us plainly what his intentions are. What's the reason, his motive for writing. He doesn't leave any guesswork like, oh, I wonder why he's writing this letter. He tells us plainly and that's his writing style. In the gospel of John in chapter 20, verse 31, he says, but these things are written to you that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So he, he's just upfront about why he's writing the things that he's writing. We've already heard him say this back in chapter one, verse four. He says, we write these things so that your joy may be full. He, he wants them to have fellowship and realize in fellowship There's a joy that can be experienced there. Later on, he's going to write in 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe. And so in the gospel, he says, I'm writing so so that you will believe. And now in this letter, he's writing to those who do believe. But to reaffirm the gospel, I write to you that who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And of course, here as we read this, why are you writing this, John? We write these things to you. I write so that you may not sin. John, John will have a lot to say about sin. And I told you when we started this letter, and if you're familiar with John, you know, some of the um, words he will use often that have become just kind of our backdrop of banner He'll talk about love a lot. He's going to talk about the love of God and, um, and, not, and not the love of the world, right? There's also some comparison he'll make or contrast. He's going to talk about life, which we've already seen, right? The eternal life, the life that we have in Christ. Um, he'll compare that to the opposite of death. Uh, he's going to talk about 
light, uh, how we are children of the light and um, father of light. And, 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 you know, we've already seen that. Right? We're to walk in the light. Don't walk in darkness. Uh, all of these themes, of course, pointing us to Jesus Christ. Uh, but an, another topic he hits is sin. And I didn't think it'd be, it'd be good to make it, you know, like Jesus loves sin. That, that would be weird, right? Yeah. But it's a topic he talks about. And, and, and he wants us to understand, bottom line is this, the seriousness of sin. That we would remember, that we'd realize that sin is serious. And because sin is serious and God thinks seriously about sin, so should we. And so there should be a seriousness then about how we live far away from sin. A, a life of righteousness. And so not only does he have a, a, uh, a parental heart, he has a pastoral heart. Like, why are you writing this to us, John? Because he cares about us. And really it's God's, it's really God's extension, right? God's love being manifested through him. God cares about us. But John knows the ugliness of sin. He knows the reality of sin. He, 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 uh, he knows that sin corrupts and sin erodes and sin will spoil everything that's good for us. I mean, it is sin that separated us from God. And this is the gospel 101. God is holy. God is perfect. God is good. God is pure. John already told us, God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. The problem though is that we're not holy. We're not perfect. We're not pure. Sin separates us then from a relationship with God. The Bible says we all have sinned, Romans 3.23. We all fall short of the glory of God. God's perfect standard, none of us measure up. We might measure ourselves against other people, and sometimes we do, don't we? And when we do, it's like, all right, I'm not, I'm not as bad as that person. I'm not as, our family's not as crazy as those people on the corner. Look at them. And if you're really bad like me, sometimes, you know, when I watch some shows like Hoarders, you ever see that show? I'll compare myself to Hoarder, I'm like, well, I'm not that bad. You know, our house is a little cluttery. That's the wrong standard, though. We use our, so often we do, don't we? We use ourselves as the standard. But we're not the standard. God, God is the standard. And here's the bar. And it's kind of like when you're a kid or parents, you have kids. You go to the amusement park and they, they got to be a certain height to ride the ride. Right? There's the bar. And have you ever been in a situation where some of your kids are tall enough and the others aren't, right? Then it's like, oh, no. Um, but there's a certain height. If you're not that height, you don't get on the ride. Uh, I also found out in Universal Studios Japan and Osaka, uh, you have to be a certain waist size to get on a ride. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we were standing in line at this one ride, Christy and I, and we get to the front and all of a sudden the Japanese lady's looking at me she's doing this thing and they call me over and there's a, uh, there's a section, a, a car, you know, they have a car off the track and, I, and they're like, you got to sit in there and see if the bar comes down. So I was all embarrassed. I'm like, all right. So I did and they sucked in real good. And I'm like, it works, I'm fit, you know. But then the ride looked too scary. I'm like, I don't ride your stupid ride anyways. <laughs> You don't measure up, you don't get on the ride. What's the criteria to enter heaven? 
How high is that bar? It's high. It's perfect. The, the standard is perfect. But guess what? We don't measure up. We don't measure up. We all fail. We all fall. But yes, you know who does? Jesus. Jesus is perfect. Perfect, blameless, spotless lamb. And so it's based upon his perfection. His, his credentials then provide for us a way, right? We get to enter based upon his credentials. His righteousness. The Bible says our righteousness is like filthy rags. Well, we might look good compared to other people, but compared to God, our sin separates us from God. And so what John is saying here, the idea that, that we would not sin, I mean, back in verse 7, he says, the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed us from all sin. And we talked about this last Sunday. There's, for us who come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are declared righteous. We have a positional state of, uh, of being made righteous because of what Jesus has done for us. And yet the reality is, and we all know this, is that even though we're declared righteous, we still struggle with a sinful nature. It's still our old tendencies, our old, you know, the Bible says to reckon the old person, the old man, ladies, the old woman, our old nature dead. Pick up our cross and follow the Lord. And so the nature of sin remains though. And it remains a separator. It remains a corrupter. It remains a, a distorter, a divider. It still pulls us away from the things of God. Yes, you and I, if you know Jesus Christ, you are forgiven and you are free. You are cleansed. You are made brand new by the blood of Jesus Christ. But you and I still fight the flesh. We still battle in this thing called the body against our sinful tendencies. And there are times then when we will trip up and we will stumble. And there are even times where we, we will just walk right in. It's not that we fall into temptation. We, we are opening the door. And we welcome temptation right in. We entertain sin. And it still has a separating effect. The Bible says nothing can separate us from the love of God. So this is not an issue of salvation. This is an issue of our fullness of relationship. Of intimacy with the Lord. Of being close with him. And when you and I as Christians then entertain sin... It's our relationship with God that suffers first. And know what happens next? It's our relationship with others that will begin to suffer. Because sin corrupts. The Bible likens it to leaven, like to yeast. It permeates and it spreads. And so that's why Paul writes to the Corinthian church and says, you need to take it out, remove it. We can't play with it. We can't think, oh, it's small. I, I got a handle on this. The very nature of sin is it grows. You know, people make the, I include myself, we, we make the mistake to think like, oh, I'll just, I'll just feed it a little bit. It'll be fine. The nature of sin is it's never satisfied. It, it will consume and corrupt and corrode. And that's why the Bible even likens it to leprosy and disease. It will corrode our, our spiritual walk. 
And, I, and I, there's a part of me that understands why he's writing to say, listen, I don't want you to sin. The seriousness of sin. I have seen over these years too many lives that have crashed and burned of Christians who entertained sin, didn't repent of it, thought they had a handle on it, and allowed a little to become much, and it just consumed them. It consumed their marriage, it consumed their family. Uh, for some, sadly, consumed their career. There's even, this is terrible, I think about two that are still in prison. All because they weren't thinking and didn't treat sin as serious. And so we, we look at John. Why does he want us to know these things? Because God's heart for us is that we would stay away from sin. Why? Because we, we need to think about and treat sin as serious. Why? Because it is. That's the idea. See, God takes our sin serious, and so should we. How serious did God take our sin? Well, he sent Jesus to die for you. That's how serious it is. I mean, the Old Testament system itself, right, when you, when you and I sinned, we'd, we'd have to take an innocent animal, an innocent animal. It wasn't guilty of your transgression. We, we I'm guilty. We would take this animal, confess our sins on it, to it, in front of the priest, the priest would take it and then sacrifice this animal. It was very graphic. And it was a very graphic picture of the cost of sin. That's why Romans says the wages of sin is death. It's a very visual thing like to realize, wow, what? that's how serious sin is. And yet sometimes we like, ah, it's no big deal. We dismiss it. We downplay it. We give it a different name. Sadly, there seems to be a growing number of churches and, and pastors who, at least by my observation, they don't, they don't even talk about sin. They omit it completely. They avoid it. And those who are bold enough to explain why, they're like, oh, well, it's offensive. We don't want people to be offended when they come to church. We want to have as many people to come in and be welcoming. Listen, I, I get it. We want to certainly be a loving place and welcoming, but we don't want to compromise the gospel. We're not water down the the, the scriptures. You know, and, and sadly, I think for them, their, their metric of, uh, what's the word I want to use? Their metric of success is a worldly metric. It's nickels and noses, right? How many people can we get into this place and how much money we can get? Like, that's God's business. Like, growth is the privilege that God gives as a grace to us just rightly dividing the word of truth. And we'll let God decide, right? Jesus added daily those who are being saved. The spirit added daily. Like, like our, our business is let's grow our roots down deep. And we'll let God worry about how much he wants to bring and add. And so you, know, you watch and see and sometimes sin is relabeled. It's indiscretions, it's mishaps and mistakes and missteps. Certainly there's a category of that. You make a mistake that you didn't. That, that's understandable, but sometimes they, sin becomes just, well, it's a lifestyle choice or it's a disease. 
falls under that category. I, I want to say this in love to you, church family and Calvary family. Listen, we, we need to call sin what it is, sin. The Bible labels it sin, then we want to call it sin. Is it offensive? Yeah, it's offensive. You know what it's offensive to? It's offensive to God. Right? When we sin, we offend the Lord. We have transgressed his holiness and his goodness. It's a violation of his word and his will. Is there a sense in which it's offensive to us? I, I think it's uncomfortable to us. Because right? none of us, I mean, who, who of us, my, myself included, who wants to be called out for their sin? Who wants their sin exposed? I don't. And yet, the Spirit of God, part of what he does in our life is he convicts us, right? Convicts us of our sin. Convicts us of the judgment to come. And that's a good thing. If you feel convicted when we talk about sin, then that's a good thing. God's, God's working in your heart. It's a pathway for us to, to, to purity and to put it in the light and call it what it is. Because again, sin, the nature of sin will destroy your life. That's why we can't play with it, keep it as a pet. That's why giving it a different name we think somehow it won't pollute our life or destroy your marriage or your family or your job? No, it will. And so John says, I'm writing to you so that you don't sin. Now, he is already and he will continue to walk us through these series of statements that to read them, you're like, whoa, like I, that is a lot. It's almost like he puts the bar back up super high. And in some ways he does. Because even though we come to faith, God doesn't just lower the bar and be like, all right, you can do whatever you want to do. The bar is still set high. The difference is God then gives us his spirit to enable us and empower us to live pure, to live a righteous life, to be holy as I am holy. And so we've already seen him say, listen, if you say you love God, but you're still entertaining sin, you can't, you're, Mary says you're lying to yourself. He's going to say, if you say that you love God and then you trash talk your brother and you hate people, you're lying to yourself. The truth's not in you. He, he's he's going to say, if you really love God, then you're not going to love the world. Because if you love the world and the things of the world, you're enamored by the world, he's going to say, then the love of God can't be in you. It's incompatible. Like, these are lofty statements. We're going to hear him say, if you really love God, then you're going to live righteously. Now, when I hear those things and I bump up to the, against those things, I'm like, Ooh, I, I, I still feel like I fall short of that. I can't measure to that. So that's why it's important and vital for us to get one nine down our spiritual soap and get Two, one down, concrete this, grab a hold of this, understand before John uh, makes the ascent up, before he leads us to a higher calling, which we have a higher calling, but understand what does, what has God provided for us? Here he goes. He says, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have an advocate. He's writing to Christians. He's called them my little children. 
We, the idea of that pronoun is he includes himself in his humility. We, as Christians, still have an advocate. Was Jesus our advocate when we got saved? He certainly was. By his life, by his death, by his sacrifice, we have been saved. We've been justified. All those things we talked about earlier, we've been adopted. We've been PCS'd, brought from death to life, from blindness to light, right? We can see now all of those beautiful things. And, and yet that has happened and it still remains true for us today. We had and we have, have and at presently an advocate. And notice how John phrases this. If anyone sins. The idea here is, is if and when anyone sins. That's the idea. Because the reality is everyone will sin. Even the believer. Again, we, we talked about this already. And so when we do, we have an advocate. And that word advocate in the Greek, it's the word parakleton. It means it means counselor. It means one called alongside helper. There's even the, a nuance of that word. It means uh, empowerer, enabler in a, good way, in a good sense. See, Jesus was and he remains your chief counselor. He remains your advocate who advocates for you on your behalf to the Father. The book of Hebrews says he forever lives to make intercession for you. It, it is the, the courtroom of the gospel, if you will. And you can picture in your mind's eye, like as I mentioned before, at one time we stood guilty. We stood before God, the righteous judge, and you and I stood guilty, condemned, deserving of the sentence of eternal punishment, which really is just eternal separation from God. That, that's what hell is. We're, we're separated, we're and the Bible says we're born into this, right? We're born into sin. The world is corrupted. Adam and Eve blew it. Sin came in. We live in a broken world. And, and then we're born with a sinful nature. If you, if you don't believe me, go volunteer at the toddlers sometimes. Right? They're cute. They're adorable little sinners. Like, never did I have to teach my kids how to lie, right? Never did I have to teach my kids how to uh, take cookies or candy and go into the room and hide it or the laundry room and eat it in secret. Never did I come home and find Christy, like, this is how you climb the bookshelf, Ben. Watch mommy, right? <laughs> it's just part of our nature. And so Jesus, our advocate, paid for the penalty of our sins. And so we stand now exonerated, free, innocent, absolved. And how did he do that? Jesus took your sin and he traded places with you and gave you his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is a beautiful passage. If you don't know it, I encourage you to memorize it. For God made him, or he made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin, to take our sin, so that you and I would become the righteousness of God. That was true in our salvation, and brothers and sisters, that is true today. 
because we blow it today. We still mess up today. The charge remains true. We can be guilty today. But verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, God's faithful and just to forgive us, cleanse us of all unrighteousness. How is that possible? Because Jesus still advocates for you. Jesus still is our advocate. And because he is, we don't have to worry then about forfeiting our standing. Somehow we'll fall out of grace and danger of suffering eternal punishment. No. Turn with me real quick. Romans chapter 8. Or tab over in your uh, phone or your electronic device, your iPad. Romans 8. There's a lot to be said from Romans 8. Um, our time doesn't permit me to unpack this I, as much as I want to. It's so good. I mean, even the context coming out of chapter 7 at the very end, he's talking about he struggles against his sinful nature. Verse 20 of chapter 7, he says, the things I don't want to do, I, I find myself doing it. Why? Because sin dwells in me. This is Paul the Apostle. Romans is one of his later letters. He talks about this battle, right? These, the, this battle that's happening inside of me. We talked about that last week. But then he goes on to say in verse 1 of chapter 8, Therefore now there's no condemnation. We're no longer condemned. For those who are in Christ Jesus, who, not, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus made you free. From the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do that was weak through the flesh. What does that mean? It, it, here's the idea. The law of God's perfect. But it doesn't have the power to make us perfect. It just shows us that we're not. Paul says, I wouldn't know what sin was until the law came. It's kind of like, you wouldn't know that you're speeding until you see there's a speed limit sign. And so once you see a speed limit sign, you know that's the law. But the speed limit sign doesn't make you follow the law. You go fast, and then the popo comes, and Matt comes with his police card and gives you a ticket. Right? So it doesn't have the power to make us without sin. It just shows us our sin. But what does? God, verse, the rest of verse 3, God did, though, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On the account of sin, we're not condemned. What did he do? He condemned sin. Jesus condemned sin. In the flesh. And what happened? The righteous requirement of the law was fulfilled in us. We do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And I'll close at verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, that's, that should be you and me. Well, we're going to set our minds. We're going to live according to the things of the spirit. And so Romans 8.1 tells us, listen, we... We are not condemned. Those are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation. So anytime that you feel condemned, no, that's not God's voice. Because the accuser of you, the devil, still accuses you. And so there's times where you feel like, I oh, man, I, I feel terrible. How? And he'll try to lie. How can you call yourself a Christian? Look what you did. How can you say you love God? Look what you did. What does all this mean in a nutshell for us? You need to understand that Jesus is for you and he's always for you. Even at your worst, even when you blow it, 
even when you wander, even when you stray, even when you stumble, even when you blow it big. And sometimes we do. You need to know that Jesus is your faithful friend and your faithful defender. Now certainly, as we talked before, we don't want to use God's grace as an excuse for our sin. Be like, oh, well, God's going to forgive me. I'm going to go do this. Hopefully, our love of the Lord increases and our distaste for the things of the world then also increases. But when you sin, and we do, you need to know that Jesus doesn't kick you out. You'll never exhaust his grace. You'll never exhaust his patience. He doesn't run out of patience for us. And so he is the God of second, and third, fifth, and fiftieth chances. He is for you. He's entirely for you. And then he ends, or it doesn't end, for us it's the end. He himself is the propitiation of our sins. Jesus himself. Not only is he our advocate, he's our sacrifice. He's our counselor, but as I mentioned before, he's our sacrifice. That word propitiation is a big word in the Bible. I think about when my kids were younger. When they were younger, Becca and Ben and Noah and I, they, they, were, they were more than willing to call each other out when they messed up. Right, they would blame each other like this. I'm like, who made this mess? And usually they'd all blame Ben. Ben did it. And usually he did. He was guilty. Right? <laughs> They're the accuser of the brethren. As they got a little older, there was a little bit of a, a shift. Sometimes they'd still throw each other on the bus, but they started to advocate for each other. And so there's a little bit of a shift where if one of them got in trouble and it was kind of serious, then the other ones would would I, I noticed they would kind of defend or they would want to try to explain on behalf of their brother or sister and diffuse the situation to me or Christy. And, and inside, there's a part of me that was really blessed. Like, all right. Yeah, weak arguments, but all right. You know. <laughs> and they would try to cover for each other. And, and I imagine God the Father's heart's blessed. He sees the Son who covers for us. We're guilty, and yet the Lord covers for us. And fast forward, there's even been some times uh, as they've gotten older where, where one of them would negotiate on behalf of the other. Okay, all right, Dad, how about this? We will help clean up. We will do these things, and if so-and-so can come with us, or this can happen. Not only were they willing to defend, but they were willing to uh, satisfy the righteous punishment of Dad. That's propitiation. It is the satisfying of the requirement of the penalty that was due, the payment that was due. As I mentioned before, you know, when we, if we were living in Old Testament times and you messed up, you'd have to bring a sacrifice. Well, in the Old Testament, there are certain types of sacrifices and offerings. There were different categories. And some of them were categorized as free will. Not required. You can just, you love God, God blessed you. You had extra, you know, wheat or grapes or you just wanted to love the Lord. You wanted to, uh, to bless God and, and the work of God. You know, the, the priesthood was all sustained by um, offerings. And so, you know, just on your, on, your, on your own. And there were different kinds. 
of the free will offering. You know, one of them was you just gave the whole thing to the Lord. Another one was uh, the priest would basically be like a, like a butcher at a connoisseria and they would chop it up. And then some of it went to the priest and they'd have a barbecue and some of it went back to you. And then everyone could enjoy, um, you know, carne asada. And it was great. Free will. But then there are other offerings and sacrifices that were prescribed. The burnt offering, the sin offering. If you messed up in a certain way, the Bible is clear. This is what you're to bring. Here's the price you need to pay based upon the infraction that you had. Sometimes it was a personal thing, right? An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Retribution. But when you sinned against God, you had to bring this offering. And it was required. And so when you then brought the required offering, you were atoned for. And then for that moment, until you went and blew it again and went back and brought another one, that payment was satisfied. That's propitiation. The payment was satisfied. Jesus is our propitiation. He satisfied the righteous requirement that we, we owed We had to pay. It's our penalty, but Christ paid it for you. You were guilty. You are guilty. And Jesus took our penalty, set us free. As that hymn goes, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. My God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. When he says that he is the propitiation, not just for us, but for all the world, we understand this is not a limited transaction. Jesus paid for our sins once and for all, and his sacrifice is credit to us and has enough credit forever for eternity. We don't exhaust his credits. You guys remember when you were younger and you played certain video games, you only had so many lives? Until you learned the cheat code, right? Brought your little Mario guy to the secret place and got all, you know, unlimited lives. Woohoo! God gives us unlimited grace. Book of Ephesians talks about how we've been uh, blessed with every spiritual blessing in heaven. We've been redeemed with the forgiveness of God uh, by his blood, according to the riches of his grace. You understand it never runs out. It was true the day you were saved, and it is true today. And we made this point before, right? The same grace that saved you is the same grace that sustains you today. Sometimes we think, oh, I had a one-time coupon. I used it, so I better not blow it. No, if you sin, and when we do, we have an advocate. Not just for us, the whole world. Understand, Jesus gave his life for any and all who would believe. The gospel is true for the non-believer, and guess what? It's true for us as believers. And if you, this afternoon, you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, today you can. Right now you can. You understand when it says for any, for all, for the whole world, regardless of age, regardless of what language you speak, regardless of what Uh, passport you hold or where you were born, regardless of your previous or your current religion, regardless if you're atheist or agnostic, 
regardless of your current state of sin or you, if you think you're in rebellion, God loves you. God wants a relationship with you. And he did everything. And the Bible says that there is salvation in no one else. There's only one name given under heaven in which we must be saved, and that is Jesus Christ. So for us as we are believers, and many of you are, you read this, but not, if not all of you, we read this and we think, wow, Lord, thank you for your grace that we still get to enjoy today. But if you have yet to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your advocate, you can. And it's simply the things we talked about. You recognize that our measure of standard is not ourselves, it's God himself. And we fall short of that. So we, we recognize and we acknowledge we've sinned. We've sinned against God. We're not perfect. We realize that our sin separates us from God and we are separated from him. And if you remain in that sin, you will forever be separated from the Lord. God doesn't want that. That's why he sent Jesus. So the Bible says, and but God in his great mercy who loved us, he made a way for you and for me to be forgiven for the sin and the penalty of sin to be satisfied. Jesus gave his life for you. And the Bible says that if you believe that with your whole heart, you confess your sins, you receive Jesus as your savior, then you'll be saved. And all of those beautiful terms along with it, adopted, redeemed, pcs made alive, made new. That's what God wants for us. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word this afternoon. Reminded of the importance of relationship. Help us, Father, as a church to cultivate these genuine, authentic relationships. Lord, thank you. Um, it's sobering, but it's good. We want to think and treat sin as serious. We don't want to make excuses for it, give it a different name, treat it as a pet. Lord, help us to realize it. It will destroy our life if we don't get rid of it. Thank you, Jesus, that you're always for us, that you're the God of 50th chances, that though we stumble and fall, Lord, you, you're in your grace, you pick us up and we can keep going because it's the same grace that saved us on day one is the same grace that sustains us on day 50, 500, 5,000. Lord, you gave your life for us. And you gave your life for any and all who would call upon you. And I pray if there's anybody here this afternoon that has yet to do that today, that they would. We love you and we praise you. And we thank you for forgiveness that we have. Even as Christians, we love you in your name. Amen.